morning, church. God is good, amen. Amen. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we simply ask, Father, that you be glorified, your name be lifted up and exalted. And Lord, your word says that if we lift up your son, if we lift the son of man up, all will be drawn unto him. And we thank you, Father, for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So many methods have been used over the years to draw those into the church so that they can hear the gospel and in some way or another be present under the word of God and, and, and come to a saving faith. And I remember Chuck Smith sharing a story once many years ago that there was a church in the States, uh, I sound American, but I'm Canadian. Just thought I'd clarify that. There's a church in the States that um, every year they would do some gospel presentation that was just outstanding. And it would draw the entire community into the church. And year after year, they would do something to try to better what was done before. Then this one year came along where they got this massive Christmas tree. It was so huge. And they thought, well, we need to put a star on the top of the tree. So they got a hoist in. And uh, when the hoist was here, they, they strapped it onto the, the back of this man who was dressed in some type of angel outfit. And as they hoisted him up to put the star on top of the tree, the hoist got a little bit out of control and it started spinning and spinning and spinning. And unfortunately, this gentleman started throwing up. Uh, you know, a difficult surprise, but an unfortunate anointing for those below. One they would not like to experience again. And uh, it's intriguing because the methodology of churches has changed slightly from the beginning. So today I'd like to, like to look at a man who Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11, these very words. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I've entitled this message, A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. Now, to get a complete picture of who John the Baptist was, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, and John chapter 1. I'm not necessarily going to read through all the scriptures because there's quite a bit of scripture, but I will give you the chapter and the verse that you have a reference to if you want to look at that a little bit later on. Now, it's always good to draw from the scriptures to understand the scriptures because the word of God never contradicts itself. So firstly, I'd like to lay a foundation. And the last thing the Jews ever heard came out of the book of Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. And the Bible says these words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total 
destruction. Then absolutely nothing for 400 years. Complete silence from heaven. No prophet and no fresh word of the Lord. Until one day this very strange looking man appears on the scene clothed in camel's hair as the scripture says. With a leather belt around his waist who lived on locusts and wild honey. It was a dark day in Israel. The Jews were bound to tradition and some would even have said corruption. Herod the Great was king. He was a jealous and very insecure man because he was always concerned that somebody was after his throne. It was in these dark times that God sends the angel Gabriel to Zacharias to give him an important message as our sister shared this morning out of Luke chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Picture this with me. Just imagine this. The lot fell upon you to offer up the evening sacrifice. And priests in those days were chosen at random, almost like today, the way our jury duty was chosen. And if you were chosen, it was your turn as the priest to give up the offering. And the scripture reveals that Zacharias was scared. And being scared would have been a natural reaction. Even when John was visited by his Savior, by our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, the scripture says in Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, this is now John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So it would have been a very natural reaction for Zacharias to be fearful of seeing the angel appear to him. And it's interesting what Gabriel says to Zacharias. Firstly, his name will be John. John means Jehovah is gracious. And we see that he was dedicated as a Nazarite all of his life. And if you want to learn more about what a Nazarite was, you can see that in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. The same as Samuel was, the same as Samson was. He was not to eat anything or drink anything from the wine, from the, sorry, from the vine or similar drink. All of his life, his hair shall never be cut. So you can tell I would never be a Nazarite because I can't grow any hair. And he shall never go near a dead body. The scripture actually says he was filled from the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, even from his birth. And we can see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 41, when Elizabeth meets Mary and the, and the babe in her womb jumps and is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was reference to John. And he would be God's prophet to present the Son to the people of Israel. And we see this in John chapter 1 verses 15 to 34. God would use John's ministry to turn many people back to the Lord. Just as Isaiah had promised. In Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John had a very simple and clear message. And we see that in Matthew's account in chapter 3 that John's preaching was centered on repentance and the kingdom of heaven. And this hasn't changed for nearly 2,000 years. The message hasn't. Our approach to it 
in some ways has. Many churches have abandoned the word sin and the challenge to repent. It's almost like it's something dirty. And I remember speaking to a pastor many years ago and, and, and coming to his church and, and he made these, this statement to me. He says, listen, I, I don't use the word sin over the pulpit. I just, I just don't do it. Because people, they don't understand what that means. Well, explain it to them. Churches now focus on building and drawing people to the church by using many programs and things that will attract crowds. And I've heard it once said that if we use entertainment to bring people into the church, then we need to entertain them to keep them in the church. And as parents, as all of us, we know as parents, we are told never to give sugar to a child. Why? Because they develop a taste for it. And the world has nothing to offer besides sugary, empty calories and sugary, empty promises. So why? Why must mankind in their really their own human effort strive to bedazzle the world when the message given to us is so, so simple? Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I just want to clarify what I mean by the word law, because I'll use it many times in this message. The law is referencing to the law of God. So the Jews would have had known what John was saying, and it would have offended them because the Ten Commandments were burned in their hearts. And we know them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie or bear, bear false witness. You shall not covet. We, we understand these. And the Jews, they, they knew that also. They breathed it. And they were commanded even once a year to bring a lamb without spot and blemish for their household to atone for their sins. And because of this, they would have been even more outraged that one day when John stood on the banks and declared when Jesus was coming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word repent means to change one's mind and act on that change. And John wasn't satisfied with regret or remorse. He wanted to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8. There had to be evidence of a changed mind and a changed life for John. And many times we see people crying at altars, and, and that's, that's a good thing. But there's a difference between remorse for being caught and your mind being pricked and repentance. And I believe if John was preaching today, he would hear, you know, brother, judge not, lest ye be judged. But no one would quiet John. He came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And we may know or may not know who Elijah was, but Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who preached judgment and repentance. And we can see this account in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'll let you read that yourself. But in one specific verse, Elijah went before the people and he simply said, How long will you tarry between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. 
And God that very day answered by fire. And 450 prophets of Baal were killed. John's ministry was very much the same. Israel had sinned and they needed to repent. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 to 9. The Bible says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these very stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And if every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So why did John the Baptist preach repentance and judgment? Because the Jewish society knew the scriptures and the law. Now, we all know that the law cannot save. Amen? We understand that. But the law awakens the conscience, and it is a mirror to our very souls. The law prepares the heart for God's grace. Or Isaiah says, and let, we'll read the whole thing. As Isaiah says in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, A voice of one in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight a desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places of plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The law prepares the way for the Lord. How? It, it breaks up that fallow ground. The hardness, the dull hearts of mankind. Picture the law of God like a land developer. And we see lots of land development taking place around us today. And the heart being the land. The law of God prepares the heart for the Lord. And, and I remember Chuck Smith once said these words. First of all, we need to understand that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. What's the difference, some might ask? Everything. Our very nature, our very core is corrupt. We are born, in fact, fallen, unregenerate. And our nature leans towards sin like a babe desiring its mother's milk. But due to the blindness and the hardness of our hearts, God created the law to show us what is required in order for his plan of redemption to come into being. But that was only a shadow. And we can see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. The Bible says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. And you can read the rest of that on your own. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, the law cuts into the core of the evil. It reveals the seat of the malady or the problem and informs us that the leprosy lies deep within. John Wesley 
who we all know said, before I can preach mercy, love, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. Martin Luther said, the proper effect of the law is to lead us out of our tents and our tabernacles from the quietness and security of our dwellings and from trusting in ourselves to bring us before the presence of God, to reveal his wrath to us and to set us before our sins. It sounds quite extreme, but it's just so truthful, very difficult to deny. I, I was thinking of this and picture a very practical example of what the law does. Who here, when you're driving and you see a police car beside you, automatically goes, the speed limit, we look at the speed limit. Or we hear the sirens like, was I speeding? Am I caught? What's happening? Right away, we have a sense of guilt, don't we? You know, I do right away, but, but I drive with the cruise control on anyway, so I know I'm not speeding, but instantly my heart's grabbed, isn't it? That's what the law does. It brings to our attention. It shakes us. It awakens us. And John the Baptist had a single-minded focus to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, when, I was, when I was young, as a, as a teenager, I can't recall when, 13, 16, I had, I had this dream that just startled me. It shook me to my very core, and, uh, and it shook me until I bowed my knee to Christ. In, 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 this, in this dream, it was, it was so live and real. I can smell, I can see, I can hear. Um, I, I was literally on this raft, swimming away from a boat that was on fire, and it was going down. And everybody on the boat was screaming, save us, save us. And I'm looking back and seeing people perishing. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm getting, going to the land. And I walk on the land and before me is this tunnel. And, and there's these torches. As I'm walking through the tunnel, everything behind me just continues to disappear as I'm walking forward. And the torches are illuminating my path. So I'm just following the light in front of me as I'm walking through this tunnel. And as I enter into this room, in front of me is just a plain mirror. I come up to the mirror, and as I look into the mirror, I start to observe my face in the mirror and kind of do this. And all of a sudden, I start to kind of shrivel and fall apart in this mirror. I woke up in a complete frenzy, and I couldn't shake it. It kept reoccurring, and I just couldn't shake it. And then one day, I bowed my knee to Christ in 1996, March 17th. And the Lord brought this dream back to my attention, and it didn't have the fear, but it showed me his wonderful grace that the boat was a picture of the world. And many were perishing, and by God's grace, he pulled me out and saved me and, and, and illuminated the path before me with his word and brought me before his holy law. And as I looked in my reflection in the law of God, I realized what a wretched man that I am. All of a sudden, my beauty that I thought it was, this handsomeness that I thought it was, I saw the vileness in my heart, the overwhelming burden of my own sin and guilt weighed me down, and I simply cling to the cross, and I cried out for mercy, and Jesus Christ saved me. That was 25 years ago. And the Lord, by his grace, still convicts me as I read his holy word. And it reveals that I'm simply a sinner 
saved by my wonderful Savior. And I am nothing at all without my Christ. Brother, sister, can I share something with you in closing? I've heard many people share and pray for revival. And the scripture says if we lift the Son of Man up, then all will be drawn unto him. We need to hold on to the basics. We don't need to be abrupt. We don't need to be rude. The gospel, when shared biblically, is offensive already. Why? Because our society didn't grow up with the scriptures. They have, they have no idea. Mankind doesn't realize that they need salvation. They don't realize that they're sinners in the need of a savior. Sharing grace without the law is like throwing seed onto hard soil. The law prepares the soil of the heart. Let us never forget the power and the simplicity of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. You know the scripture doesn't say at all that there's going to be an end time revival. It, it, there's nowhere in the scripture that it says that. But if the Lord, who is a gracious God, gives us mercy before his coming judgment, then the revival that the Lord is going to bring will be a revival of repentance. The Lord will start with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit opening up the eyes of the blind, rendering the heart. You know, when Jesus looked at Jerusalem, he wept. He wept. Because they, those who grew up knowing the scripture, did not see and did not recognize the destruction that was coming. I pray that our eyes be opened to what is coming. We know that we're living in the end times. Jesus Christ is coming again. And I pray that an urgency grips our hearts. John Wesley said it best in closing. It is the ordinary method of the Spirit of God to convict sinners by the law. It is this which set onto the conscience, breaks the rocks into pieces. It is more especially this part of the Word of God, which is quick and powerful, full of life and energy and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he also said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether there be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God upon earth. Church, the law has a rightful place as a schoolmaster to open up the eyes and to soften the heart. It pricks the conscience and prepares the soil for the good news of the gospel. And when we think of that, how glorious is that good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And when we hear that, the good news is so glorious. When, as a sinner, we look before a God and we realize how wretched are we are. And there's none that is righteous because the law of God convicts us of that. How glorious is the good news of the gospel. Can I leave you just with one picture today? Picture this, John the Baptist standing on the shores. And John the Baptist being a picture of the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament law. And as he's standing on the shores, what is he doing? He sees Jesus Christ and he points to him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's interesting because that's a picture what Hebrew says. The law was a shadow pointing to something greater. And Jesus Christ is that something, that someone greater.